I wager one can scarcely broach the topic of the European pantheon without at least a mention of the Germanic gods. Of these, most famous is the Nordic gods, their law and mystery. Some claim it is by handicap that the Nordic gods have let the talons so easily sink into the perseverance of memory. Not so. If there is a handicap, it comes from the fact that the vitality of the Nordic gods is laid bare and so readily accessible. The stark contrasts of the religion of fires and frosts, of rising suns and falling moons, of wolf and raven, god and man and monster, such we say is the stuff of legends. The Eddas today are as relevant as they ever were, and some might admit more so now. Our gods were men and women like us, with dreams and missions. They fought greed, they dripped with lust, they loved and lost and won and hated. They mourned their dead and awaited the resurrection of the sun. As we all of us do down here in the Valley of Tears, we got for trading in the mountains of triumph. The gods wandered the earth in disguise, and one never knew if a stranger in their midst was a man, a god, or a monster. Such a wonder to behold that every day that lived and died could have been a legend in itself. One would assume such a Weltanschauung would make life seem somehow rather sacral. But we romanticize the past because it is an easy thing to do. Like the young man who closes his eyes to imagine the lassie of his dreams, it is no great thing to make her do as you please, in the kingdom of imagination. So it goes with history. We imagine the mythic eras in paradisiac language, but the gods remind us what Hobbes would so famously decry. Life is nasty, British, and short. To that end, our gods had codes of morals, harsh and unflinching. Their honor was called true, but only to kin. Outside that church, there was no salvation, no taboo, until, of course, there was. So it goes that the living and dying gods have remained in our heart, never having really left, never really needing to be resurrected, so much as rediscovered. Relearned, of course, and maybe more reintroduced. So many of our traditions are shaped by the minds of the gods, holidays, customs, superstitions. More even then, than these are the unspoken desires and the dark shadows in the heart. We owe the gods much, and so it should surprise none that when it comes to the rise of the gods, from the whitewashed tombs of the post-industrial hellscape, the Norse should have stood at the head of that hallowed host. There again rides Odin, with his spear aimed to sail aloft over the heads of the damned. I myself pray for their return to reign upon the earth, whereupon the alien idols are ground to golden dust and made into glitter to adorn the pretty little cheeks of all of our daughters. They can dance around the maypole until their youth abandons them, but my prayer is that they never know the suffering that we have known, of identity stolen and raped, of love lost and hatred risen. That part of the innocence... May each god and every drop of blood in my vein and yours sing this prayer. That this stage of innocence never leaves them. That they may never need to ask who they are and who they are to become. My prayer is that they may lie forever in the shadow of the gods and never know the instability, insecurity we have known. Such a prayer should sound in your mind louder than the fiercest drum and stick longer than the greatest song. Maybe you shall share a care, and mayhap you shall share a prayer. But to pray should you not be first acquainted with the object of your devotion. 
Let me tell you about my gods, and in so learning, perhaps you shall see something of yourself in them, or them in yourself. So it was for our ancestors. This was good enough for them, good enough to propel them across the four corners of the world, when now we see that godless rule leads men to little else but rot and ruin. I think, then, that we should seek for the wisdom of our ancestors, seek to know and feel what they knew and felt. I shall here and again remind you that at the front of all of our genealogies, a god once stood. Whether it was Volden or some other chief among us, I might be a fool to guess. Every tribe had gods, so now I shall tell you what I know of mine. See now, my god is Odin, and I begin with him. The Allfather, whom my English forefathers called Volden, whom my German antecedents called Wotan, know that the Dutch among whom my forefathers lived called him Vodan. All these names, they are the same, and they come from Voldenarts, the spirit of the wilderness and of the frenzy that the wilderness may bring. Here you see was a Cathonic god, mayhap risen to celestial heights. Many assert he, master of the runes, lent his name, whose root is Uth, to Uthala, which my which in English becomes Ethel, and shall be the name of my first daughter. And why not? It is my favorite rune, as Odin is my favorite god, and lends itself, as he does, to illustrate certain necessities of the order of our day. This rune is often the final rune in the traditional Futharks, and stands for inheritance and immobile property, and the spiritual inheritance of esoteric things, such as honor, kith, and kin. It is also said he lent his title to the rune Ansutz, which in time becomes the English Ors, which the English named after a god called Mouth, a title once used by Volden. This god has many names to each of his tribes throughout Magna Germania, such as it is now, and for each of his names he has many a cognomen. In the Nordic lands alone, Odin has more than a hundred nicknames, for it is said that when he took on human flesh to wander the lands of mortal men, he took once not the same name twice. Hangatir he has been called, the Hanged God. Boldwerk he has been called by his foes, the worker of evil. And Grim he has been known, Chod he has been called. There is no end to the number of names that he has taken. So it is the Norse form of the God we shall first speak. Odin, we know, is king of the Aesir, for he lords over Valhalla, where the noble dead men dwell in their numbers behind each of Valhalla's 540 doors. Those who saw Valhalla were said to become Einherjar, and would fight for their god in the last. Higher still than Valhalla is Hlidskjalf, a tower from which Odin goes to observe the worlds, from whence nothing can be hidden before him. On his arm he wears an oath ring called Dropnir, which on every ninth night drops eight more of a kind, multiplying ever in multiples of nine, the North's sacral number. The god carries a spear by the name of Gunknir, which when thrown can never miss her target. Often it is on the back of his eight-legged horse, Sleipnir, that he carries Gunknir. While he possesses splendid battle armor capped by a golden helm, Odin often chooses to wander about in a heavy cloak, colored Prussian blue bedecked in stars. On his head he wears a wide-brimmed hat, hiding his one-eyed visage. 
Possessed of wisdom, Odin is a hard god to know, hence his disguises. Cloaked in mystery, he has matched wits with giants, wagering their lives. And those who have given their life to forfeiture, he has held communion with, often interrogating the souls of the Volvar, whose dead seeresses, from whom naught was hidden, were dredged up from Nifel's mist. But on some occasions he has revealed himself in his threefold mystery as Har, Jafenhar, and Trida. This he did for Gilfi, king of Sweden, when he revealed the mysteries of the Nordic universe. You would be forgiven to remember that Odin was once reckoned a trinity in Odin, Vili, and Ve, though sometimes called Odin, Hænir, and Loder. Dark and mysterious, Odin is a god to whom those concerned with the occult should flock. His domain was, and is, and shall be, secret knowledge, prophecy, and portents. More than this, he is a god of progeny, and is keen in establishing bloodlines, in whose purview we find Odal's rune, a lordly god who watches the construction of dynasties with interest. Here is a god who takes to kennings and speaks in riddles, prizing poetry, wit, and wordcraft. A god who masters himself, making his body a temple where sacrifices are performed. Odin is the god of life and death. So it was that this god never ate food for himself, but idly sipped at wine, itself a symbol of wisdom and refinement, as mead was poetry. Rather, he gave scraps to his wolves, wolves a symbol of passion and carnality. The implication was clear. Odin was master of his own passions, his familiars being wolves and ravens, with ravens being clear symbols of his arcane mastery, as wolves were party to the physical. He was there when the nine worlds came into being, and he alone sees far enough into the future that he knows whence the elements shall be dissolved and the cosmos be plunged into the deep, dark waters of rebirth, emerging again triumphant under the new heavens, Antlang, Sindri, and Gimli. Some have whispered that the risen god, mysteriously called Almotki Os, the mighty god, is he himself renewed as the fruit of Yggdrasil's sacrificial altar. So Odin follows the path of resurrection, offering himself a living host to himself, the god of death. He pierced himself to the tree of life, and in bleeding out on the sacred bark was himself reborn. He was reborn with the knowledge of the runes, which he and his sons, the Aesir, would share with the worthy. To this day, those who learned the runes could set themselves apart and transcend the limits of daily knowledge, for coded in our language is a rubric to enlighten your understanding of the world. Our language was meant to hold a story in which every letter, and in every letter, would hold a promise. He who cuts and stains, who wrists and reads, knows much, and like Odin and Frigga, may choose to say little, or like Odin and Freya, may choose to say much to those, if those to whom they speak were first deemed worthy of wisdom to hold. A god not limited to any station, Odin accepts the valiant dead into Valhalla, but is not confined to this lot. He is also a god of sex, having learned even Sire from the secretive Vanir goddesses, and establishing lineages of demigods among women from the tribes of God and men. Though for you peckish brothers, you must confess among the gods for whom flesh is a myth itself, sex becomes poetry, allegory, lore, and simile. So it should be for us again, an act neither beginning nor ending in flesh. Sex is life, 
but also heat and even a kenning and wisdom. Ever Odin possesses the great spirit of wisdom, who herself takes many names, many faces, and has given herself to many a man before. A man should know that to seek wisdom is to blur a line between love, lust, of a platonic and erotic sort. In his quest for wisdom and knowledge, he matches wits and cunning with those of every creed and color, and in every case comes out victorious. There is only one thing which can finally defeat the All-Father, and that is the dissolution of the cosmos into the great consummation of the elements. Now even this is subject to debate. Such is his thirst for wisdom, that to slake it, he reached his fingers into his very eye socket and left an eye at the bottom of Mimir's well for a chance to drink from the waters of prophecy, now clouded with the rich crimson blood, clouding from his skull. The god of victory, he who blesses the lineage he creates and shapes into the tribes that he blesses. Odin seeks to forestall Ragnarok, the inevitable decline and disintegration of the order of the cosmos through violence and degeneration. Over the course of the ages, he sires many children, each of whom is guided by Urlog and Vird to play a role in ensuring something of this world survives into the next. Such was his conviction that he was willing to live a life knowing full well to the end that there was a victory he could not achieve. And he would live this life if it meant he could give his progeny new life. Surely, All-Father, you make a fine god for the discerning connoisseur who knows the value of blood and soil. So much now for the Nordic lands. Among the Germanic tribes, Wotan was a god of battle. We know that his sway was great, for when the tribe of Christ came to practice a run of their own Ragnarok for the soul of the world that went before, Wotan's hold was so great that he above all gods needed to be silenced. Even in Germany, his power was so vast that unlike in every other day where the midweek held his name, the Germans had only Mittwoch. In English we have Wednesday, once Woldensberg. Little then is known of Wotan beyond the popular image given by the great composer Wagner. These images were borrowed from the Nordic folk. But there is a surviving document which bespeaks the god's character. The Merseburger's Albusbrüche tells of a god of healing who knows the charm to heal Baldur's wounds when he fell from his horse. This is an image that my English forebears would know, for among the Anglo-Saxons, Volden was more a wanderer and a shaman. So much less brooding than our Nordic cousins, the Anglo-Saxons knew a wanderer and a shaman. Now, their Woden was keenly bound to nature, and he rendered knowledge of the plants. There is no wonder, for his name is connected to wood. He was a god of the trees and forests, a nature spirit. His charms were credited to Jesus Christos, for a time called Helland, and these served as folk medicines for ages. He gave to the peoples rituals and remembrances for kindling nature and bringing vitality to the land and the earth. One might assume that earth was his wife, for the English hid their pagan rites in dedication to Drita, whom they once called the new Christian god. And in this god there was a mirror in whom Woden's face was shown, and Mother Earth whose belly he filled yearly. God and now unnamed goddess were invoked later, even after the church had come to bear. Indeed, the character of Odin was drained like the British cup of life, now called Grail, into the new god. And when one gazes upon the Catholic Christ, they see an image 
inspired by the king of the pagans they once claimed to resist. My ancestors could not abandon our god, and even King Alfred the Great, Christian saint of educators and nationalists, called upon Woden as his ancestor. But the folk soul is not satisfied to let things lie as they have been, and so young knew that he would, Wotan returns, and he brings the Alsatruar with him, among others blooded by conviction. So face to hell, Feder God Vukluma. May you ever lend me your wisdom on my endeavours, as I swear by a name to carry the torch of Herodotus, as I may, and paint the pictures with which I pray my brothers might see the signs. What is man without woman, king without queen, and god without goddess? Odin's wife is Frigga, the embodiment of love and motherhood. As Odin brings ecstasy and passion, Frigga brings stability and conscience. What Odin knows and does, so does Frigga, for she is his wife, the bearer of his keys, the keeper of his flame. She knows much and says little, tending to her sons and teaching her women to weave. Frigga is unparalleled in her knowledge of herb lore and prophecy. She is famed for her ability to spin and weave, and, like her husband, she is known for her hospitality and generosity. Being a good mother and goddess of all these who seek to bring up fine sons and daughters, she cared for all her young, perhaps none more so than her youngest son, by Odin, named Baldur. Of Baldur you shall hear more, but for now know that the Teutonic woman could move heaven and earth, scour mountain and bury valley if it meant securing a future for her children. See to it, brother, her example is not lost on you or your wife. Her name, you will know, means love. In our petulant age, her name has become a base cuss word for fornicating. Some think that she and Freya were of the same substance, in the same way Odin is of the same substance of Har and Jafenhar. One should know, Frigga, being the great queen of the Aesir, had attendants, handmaidens of whose number there were twelve. Some, my friend, believe that she and the maidens were one, and that they were aspects of the great goddess as she traveled the worlds, much in the way Odin's disguises have become as gods to man below. So it goes. Gna is such a goddess, as one gifted with flight. She soars between worlds upon a rainbow bridge, carrying messages between gods and gods to men. It is said her name means soaring or towering. Then there is Fula. From her name Full comes. This fleshy goddess wore a gold headband and was known to carry a cask full of Freya's holdings. There was Saga, sweet Saga. Many of the Nordic gods carry a mystery about them. Saga is such a one. Her name becomes a form of storytelling, for Saga is a long story that follows not a man but a clan. No wonder, then, that she was a goddess who sat in her hall. Sokvabek, it was called, the sunken hall. Odin Allfather visited her at night, and the two would drink together. Saga told her stories, and in her veins reigned the history of the world. She knew the name of every god and the history of every family. Perhaps this is what Odin and the winter goddess discuss, these histories. Now, some say that Freya and Frigga, being one, are still yet one with Saga, and in her shade of the crown, she had to discuss, if you will, the sagas of the gods, their histories, their families, their lineages. Ayr was called the physician among the gods, 
learned in the lure below, as well as how to leech. Curiously, she finds her name in the registry of Odin's maidens, and she is known as both a Norn and a Valkyrie, a powerful asset to the gods. Indeed, there was Gephion. This is the name of a gigantic goddess who, in the form of an ox, gave birth to four plough-draggers and created the boundaries of Zeeland. Gephion is also the name taken by Freya, and this name means giver. Gephion was said to be a virgin, and that the souls of the unmarried found their way to her hall after death. Surely a virgin goddess would pine for affection, and this is precisely the meaning of the name Siofen. She was one who turned the hearts of men and women toward one another in love, and she stands over Lofen, whose name at once means permission and praise. It was she who asked the Allfather and Great Mother to break down the stigma of marriage and allow those whom fate had decreed not marry otherwise do so. Her attribute is the golden key. Now, when one asks permission, there is ever the looming chance of denial. So, we understand the meaning of Sin's name. She was the guardian of doors and entries, the goddess who knew what spirits were welcomed where, and whose souls entered what realm. She watches thresholds and the changes that they bring. After her comes Hlyn, a protectress and a mother of all shield maidens, such as they were. The eyes of Hlyn are ever upon the backs of those whom Frigga loves. Some swear that it is in this form that Frigga comes to protect those whom she will. Snotra was a goddess after whom the young married maid was named, but her role is broader. She is the mistress of self-knowledge, of shepherds and intuition. So now comes Vor, the goddess of prophecy, whose eyes are escaped by no shadow, whose ears miss no whispered secret. Her name relates to prophecy, and from it we get the English for, as in forewarn and foreknowledge, all prophetic intonations. At last we come to Var, who hears oaths and prayers as they are given over there on the hearth, and it is in the hearth of the everyman where she might be found. She was also called as witness before private contracts, and she who punished infidelity. Freya is the goddess of love, a sultry maiden of great appetite. We can never be certain that the more sordid tales in her name are accounts of her deeds or the attempts of latter-day monks of a bookish nature to besmirch her good name. Who would go so far as to relay that she would sink so low as to consort with dwarves, the most loathsome of creatures? Be that as it may, the goddess had taste and craved fine things. Sometimes this got her into trouble, as many a woman has encountered trouble before, by heedlessly following craving. However, whatever may be said of Freya's carnal nature, her importance as role to women seeking power cannot be underestimated. Odin shared half his bounty with her. Where Odin sat in judgment over Valhalla, Freya walked among the dead held in Falkvang. Where Odin fared forth with the Einherjar, who but Freya rode at the head of the Valkyrjur host. Like Odin, Freya applied herself at occult knowledge. Coming from the Vanya, she was accomplished in a magical art known as Cider, whose purpose is mysterious to us now. She was known to consort with the dead and seek for knowledge from the seers. Surely, if the shield maidens had a goddess, it would be she. Now, though, be forewarned, real women with power do not become obelisks hewn from stone. Freya, who could strike fear into God and man, cried tears of gold as she waited for her husband Od to return from his journeys. 
On one occasion, Loki made an arrangement to sell her away as a bride to the Jotun Mason, whom Loki tricked into building Asgard's wall. Such was her disgust for the foreign tribe that not even the mighty gods could help but fear her scorn. Like Odin, she sometimes gave mortals heroic progeny, such as one tale where she flirted with a mortal man whose doom was sealed despite her efforts to trick an angry witch into brewing herbs for him into a potion of invulnerability. Now, what discussion of Norse myth could be complete without mention of Thor? Thor, by my elder folk, was called Thunor, by my German cousins called Donner, and by the scholars of our day known as Thuritzatz, god of thunder, bearer of the Mjolnir, whose English name is Miller, Thor, whose hands are girt with strength, and around his waist might in the form of Megingjord. Thor is born on a chariot drawn by goats, Toothgnasher and Toothgrinder. His red mane and beard burn like sunfire, and his eyes spark like the storms he conjures in mist and rain, thunder and lightning. If Odin, his father, is the god of lords and poets, then it follows Thor is god of the working man and the everyman. Born of the goddess Jord, who was once named Earth, whom we call Mother Earth, Thor embodied the summer storms. He was said to be so great and so strong that he could not cross the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge, without breaking it. Friend of the peasant, Thor wielded the hammer, a symbol of creation and destruction. Mjolnir, the miller, crusher of Etten and Jotnar bones, grinder of the foes of the gods, could quicken as well as fell. For Thor could strike death into his enemies, but raise life from his friends and kin. It was by his hammer that marriages are said to have been hallowed, and no small wonder, for the hammer was the home-builder's tool, as well as the ship-builder's. And what is a marriage but an esoteric institution built from the love worked on by Herr and Frau? Thor was the everyman's god because he is relatable. Thor makes jokes, he has a temper, and while quick to anger, will nevertheless make right. Now unlike his father Odin, Thor has no time for the endless pursuit of the esoteric. He prefers life lived in the moment, hard at work or war. A strong man accustomed to solving problems with his arms, not with his mind. However, like many a good man, he was not incapable of rising to the occasion when the esoteric called. He was able to defeat a while and money-grubbing dwarf in a competition of riddles. This he did not by matching wits with the pathetic wretch, but waiting for the sun to rise, turning the wicked kobold to stone. However, he was not too terribly easy to fool, as we learn from his journey to Utgard, my own favorite tale of the god. For all his strength, Thor was a god who was humble and willing to learn from his faults and overcome. Another god for our times, not one riddled in hubris, but humble, and smitten with his homeland, and obsessed with its defense, and the extirpation of those who threaten Asgard from without and within. Such is his good nature that he often takes Loki on as a traveling companion, enjoying his sense of humor. Few traveled with the trickster, but Odin and Loki, uh, but Odin and Thor. Now Thor, being a god cherished by families, whose blessing concentrated weddings, surely had a wife. And he did. Her name is Sif. Sif, a harvest goddess, has the most beautiful mane of golden hair, with skin as pale as crushed wheat and eyes as blue 
as water beneath the cloudless sky at high noon. A lucky man, rough the necked Thor is, to have such a gentle wife. With her blessing, harvests come and go, as her name was and is related to the sheaf. On one such occasion, Loki, the god of tricks, thought it would be a fun joke to sneak into her bedroom and shear away at her hair. Her hair itself was symbolic of the coming stalks, and when Thor awoke to a bald wife, he knew at first whose neck his hands would embrace. Were it not again, as with so many other times, for the intervention of Odin Allfather, Thor would have wrung the trickster's neck until it broke. And again, as so often was the case, Loki was forced to undo his dirty deeds and reset the balance of the cosmos that he exists to test. So it was that the wicked dwarves were cajoled to do right again from their craft and make for her a mane of gold that would take root to her scalp. Whole again, her radiance shone, and the crops grew. And what miraculous goddess gave the lady her husband but Yord, the Mother Earth herself? Mother Earth spread her legs for the wild god of spirit and ecstasy. She gave birth to Thunder, none other than Thor. Some say she disguised herself as a giantess to give her son his attributes, his belt and gloves to wield his hammer. While she may not have shared the precise nomenclature with the Norse, my ancestors venerated Yord under a plethora of names. We called her Nerthus and Urche, among others, many others. There are some who feel that Nehelenia is a kind of Nerthus, which would equate the path of this goddess's masks with the very face of Hela, an interesting riddle. Our kind favored the earth goddess, fattened by the bounties of the sky god in arcane rituals, in which the effigy of the goddess was drawn by a chariot, her image so holy that the handler himself was drowned as an offering in holy water. Or so the jealous Romans tell us. If true, and if so, an exciting notion, for perhaps that procession symbolized the withdrawal of the faithful into the womb of the earth goddess, with the expectation that bounties would be born of the exchange a resurrection of its own kind. Nevertheless, even into the Christian era, the mysterious Mother Earth, wife to Father God of the Sky, continued to be placated by farmers. What we know is that to the English mind, in a way, the Norse did not understand. The goddess held a firm grip, our folk in thrall, to this day. Remember her upon the poet's tongue. And the poet's tongue is tied in praise of her bounties, passed down in our wives, remembered in the stories told to us by our mothers, women, the torchbearers of culture, such as it was and such as it is. Ah, and surely we speak of Christians when we speak of ourselves. What English speaker has not heard or uttered the name Mother Earth? In this way the goddess never left. But questions remain of this enigmatic goddess. Was she a face worn by Frigga, the lady and the lover who comes as to so many others? So many questions, and not enough lives to live, to find the answers that my heart would seek. But alas, as Sif sought to sustenance, so another goddess sought to youth. Her name was Idun, and by her fruit the gods were made whole. In the solace of her groves and orchards, she tended to the apple trees that she grew. It was said that a taste of her blessed fruit would drain old age from the bodies of the gods, and make them as young as when they were as the cosmos breathed its first. So imagine their disdain when on, sun, when on one such occasion Loki sought to entertain himself by bringing the high gods low.
He tricked Eden and arranged for her apples to be stolen, and this time Odin himself would have dispatched Loki to his daughter in Helheim. Of course, Loki was able to resecure access to the apples, and the gods were ensured that their strength would not fail until the final day. Hmm. Now, not all goddesses were sweet and innocent. Some. And not all were sultry and lusty. Again, only some. Some were downright mean, and Skadi is such a one. Skadi comes to Asgard on a quest of vengeance after her father, Thjalfi, made the fatal mistake of challenging Odin, king of the gods. She came demanding Wergild, as was her right. At first, she could not be brought to reason, and so Loki was dispatched to entertain her. Having no dignity intrinsic to himself, Loki humiliated himself in the guise of a goat, and so goaded her to laugh. Now willing to negotiate, she claimed for an interesting price. She sought for a husband and would not settle for anything less than one chosen from the Aesir. The Aesir, cunning gods, acquiesced to her demand. However, no man would wish for a bride so dour unless he truly appreciated suffering. Thus, in the interest of fairness, for it was Balder she wanted, and it was Balder that Odin would not give, they made a deal. Allowed to see only their feet, she would choose her suitor from the gods. In the end, she chose the shapeliest and strongest feet, and Ernjord, whose feet were apparently kept spry by sea salt, as her husband. Their marriage would not last. Njord was a god of the sea and the shore, and Skadi of the field and the hill. Of course, her name is related to the ski, an invention of hers that she used to hunt with. In the end, however, she became a fierce defender of the Aesir, and when Loki pressed his luck for the final time and caused the death of Balder, and then, on top of it, insulted the gods, it was Skadi who arranged for his final humiliation. After Odin ordered Loki bound, Skadi hung an... She hung a serpent above his head. It was, perhaps, no wonder, then, that we find that her name gives us the modern English scathe. She was a goddess that took sheer delight in tormenting her foes. And why not? Njord was a husband to the most scathing goddess. He was also the father of Freya and Freya, the lady and the lord of the Vanir, given to the Aesir as hostages to secure peace at the first war. He himself joined them in the exchange, unwilling to let his children go alone. He was known as a cool and temperate god, and his realm was Notun. Tyr, the sword god, one-handed lord of war, called Tyu by my, by my kind, long before the Nordic name came to dominate our minds. Tyoats, we are told, he was called in the long days before the Germanic kin made our parting of the ways to carry the weight of the world upon our backs like an atlas, following in the fall of Rome. Tyoats, he was called, they say, once upon the time when the Proto-Europeans roamed the face of the earth. This name, our learned scholars tell us, once belonged to the god who became Zeus and Jupiter in Greece and Rome. This leads some to say that Tyr was once the rightful king of Asgard. Tyr was a warrior of great renown, and many a foe had learned to fear his sword hand. It is a tragic irony, then, that the most famous of his tales involves losing that hand. Even so, he sometimes journeyed with Thor. Tyr was known to travel to secure things that the, Asgardian, uh, that the gods of Asgard needed in order to thrive. 
as in the time he traveled to secure a beer cauldron for a year, his father. From his father. In England, my ancestors called him Tew. Some say that he once had another name, and was called Irman, after the Irman Sul, the great tree of the Saxons. Charlemagne's dogs it was that were ordered to cut it down, a shame they wasted their efforts on us, only for them to be betrayed later by the devil's children that they would convert, who have been burning down their crosses ever since. Perhaps Charlemagne's children will remember whence their bloodline comes when we stand the ermine seal up once more. Seeing as we have talked a spell about Friar, it's worth speaking of her brother a bit. Friar, often said to be her twin, is a chivalrous god, high-born among his people. Like most Vanir, he had a love for crops, and it was to Freya that the people prayed for the insemination of the crops. That was not the only thing Freya fertilized. In surviving iconography, Freya is frequently depicted with a phallus that would scare an ogress. One might expect that for a god so generously endowed, he might carry with him tales of cavorting and infidelity. Perhaps there was a time he did, however. Of one of his tales, there stands but one above the lot in folkish memory. His wooing of Gerd, or perhaps a better description, is his arrangement to secure her. He had sent his servant, the supreme gentleman did, Skirnir, who himself was less gentlemanly. His price was Friar's sword, and the knowledge of runes to bind and loose. Of particular importance to Sweden, in the formation of their dynasties, he was sometimes called Ingvi, or simply Ing. A rune is named after him in this guise. In the once great temple of Uppsala, Freya stood with Odin and Thor, praiseworthy honor, to be sure. In Saxonland and later England, the god was called Freyl. Bragi is the god of poetry, a son of Odin, doubtless is he. Bred from wisdom, runes of eloquence were carved into his very tongue, a tongue whose words never failed to bewitch. He inspires the hearts of those smitten by the wordsmith's forge, whose sparks shoot out as kennings, metaphor, and allegory. It is from him that we draw the word brag, as a braggart was once he who used wit and charm to make his way. Like all heathen words, it was not always a term of derision, for braggarts, like Bragi, once fulfilled their word. Ayr of the Vanir came to the Aesir after the First War. He was renowned for his brewery, and at one point known as a bit of a crank. In time, however, the Aesir set him straight, and he came to host many events for the Aesir gods in his splendid hall. This earned him his role as god of hospitality. Added insult to injury, some time after Baldur's death, Aeir would host a feast to brighten Asgard's mood. It was here that Loki sealed his fate by fleeting, or poetically insulting, each of the gods and goddesses to their face. It was only Thor's return that put him to flight, and thereafter the gods would pursue him to his gruesome, yet very hard-earned and well-deserved fate. Now, Asgard had a watchman named Heimdall, the whitest god whose teeth shone as gold and whose eyes could see a hundred miles in every which way. One might be tempted to think of the watchman as a lonely god, but Heimdall often took on mortal form, having crossed the mists of Bifrost to walk the strands of Midgard. Some days he might come as a wanderer named Rig, whose name we know means king in Old Gaelic. 
Other days he might come with no name at all. Mankind owes Heimdall much, for the White God once acted himself as Odin's mouth and gave the caste system to mankind, ordering the kinds of men and women born so that they might seek their best destinies. Heimdall, like Odin, also upbred kings, and was known to teach the runes to worthy seekers of wisdom and knowledge. His natural enemy is Loki, the god of mischief. And who should question why? Loki was a rabble-rouser, and Heimdall the great guardsman, who must well have known it would be for Loki's mischief that he would at last sound the once silent Gjala horn, which would herald the end of the world. There was Forseti, kinsman of Baldur, who was a lord of the law. It was to his hall that the gods went to hold thing. They would debate questions of legality, and they would go there to settle disputes. None left his hall unhappily, and none were ever slighted, for the god rendered perfect equanimity. Of course, of course, there was Balder. Balder was the youngest son between Odin and Frigga. He was most likely a warrior of renown and skill, for from his name we get today's English bold. Brave, the word tends to mean. So it is we that we call the eagle after him, the bold eagle, a bird of prey. Some say Balder was a warlord, but in the Eddas he comes to us as a partial lamb. He comes to us as the joy of his parents' marriage, a light in dark times, and innocence personified. He was a youth plagued by dreams, so plagued that his mother Frigga knows are all too real. Balder dreamt of his own death and was afraid. So Frigga, sweet mother, took the falcon skin and soared throughout the world's nine and visited upon each denison her solemn prayer that they should swear to do her son no harm. Long was her quest, and even a mighty goddess grows tired. In her weariness, she forgot the lowly mistletoe. The long and short of the story, which I'm sure we shall tell before the end of this array, is that Loki makes his switch from trickster to devil. He arranges for mistletoe to be the end of Baldur. Baldur, who could have been an invincible god before man and god, were it not for the tragic machinations of the Norns. Unable to bear her grief, Baldur's loyal wife, Nana, threw herself down with Baldur and went with him into the flame. You must understand that when Baldur's body was sealed with fire and then by water, Hela rose up from the deep to claim him. When she did, she brought the summer of Midgard to him and left the world in line to receive the last winter, Fimble, and then Ragnarok. So it would go that when the ashes of the old world were washed away and a new creation might rise from the waters of life beneath the Almatki Os, Balder would emerge again from hell, a new dawn. If nothing else, understand that from innocence and mirth must come light and prospect. Without them, doom would follow, always until innocence is recovered at last. However, this tale, the most renowned and celebrated among them, is but the Nordic call. To the Germans, Balder may not have ever died, but we know from a tablet called the Merseburger's Albusbrüche that Balder was a horseman. This we know, for he once fell from his horse and was healed by Vodan. Beldeg, he was called in the Anglo-Saxon tongue, and to my knowledge our ancestors knew nothing of his death, for to my knowledge neither did we Saxons await a final hour as the Norsemen did. If we did, then this grimmery is not what the fates have allowed us to remember.
What can be said of the tragedy of Baldur at Loki's hands that does not mention Hel? Her names are many, her age is great. It is likely that she predates Norse religion by itself and has a lost role among the Low Germans. Hel, Hela, Hela are among her Nordic names. Some say that she is also Frau Hulda, sometimes called Holda. And others make a sound argument for her being known to the Low Germans as Nehelenia, who among my own ancestors was known as Ellen and Elena. Let us begin our ditty on the so-called death goddess here. There is far more to her than the dour image of the Norsemen. And that image is this, that we may, that we may dispel it for now. Hell was said to have been the spawn of Loki, born deformed, a beautiful maiden from her crotch to her scalp, but rotten from her crotch to her toes. Speculations abound. Had she leprosy? Was this a metaphor? This, and it is only the opinion of your host, is that it is poetry. The beautiful goddess of death was given feet of clay, as it were, to stand upon, this giantess among our kind. It is said Odin took one look at her, at her presentation after birth, and threw her headlong from the edge of the earth, where she crashed into Niflheim, and was given her own realm, the Titula Helheim, to rule upon. It is said that she sits there in a throne of despair, before a table named Famine, with longing and misery, her fork and knife, doted on by Ganglati and Ganglot, the loathsome, draugr-like couple whose names mean shuffler. In the tale, she was said to have coolly regarded Hermod, the messenger, that should all of Midgard weep, she would release Balder from her care. Yet, yet it remains, it was she, that also laid out flowers when Balder was to be received at Hela's table. Yes, her table was decked with flower and song, and Balder was made welcome, and he was made well, and this she was sure to inform Hermod when he came to seek for Balder's soul. This bespeaks a goddess not of grimmery and despair, but of nature and function. Balder was a god of light and innocence, whom she received into her dark and gloomy kingdom with charity and grace. Remember this. Now, if it is true that Holder was a shade of hell, and there is a definite etymological argument to be made, then know this. Frau Holder was said to care for the souls of those that died in their infancy. Surely such a deed as this invites no cruelty, my good friend. Said also is that Frau Holder gave Lord Odin the ravens, which carry his thoughts and memories in spirit form across the nine worlds each day. It is said she has a club foot, which she uses to press the lever to her spinning wheel, suggesting she was also a dictatress of fate. This also reminds us of Hela and her deformed lower body. Holland bears her name. Nehelenia was a goddess, known among the people who became the Dutch. She was akin to crops, harvest in the sea. She cared for dogs. More, she was shown with a basket of apples, rendering her a symbol of life, not mere death. A curious extrapolation from a goddess who has suffered much at the hands of callous assumption. Curious, the goddess whose name betrays her origin. Etymology relates Hela and Holda to brightness and to those things hidden. Her home is in Niflheim, whose name means mist home, and it was Niflheim who gave forth the ice needed to melt and become life in the creation of the universe after Gagap. Her name is often given to the rune Hagalats, a rune related to both creation and hail. Her home 
death is rooted in something ancient. This suggests, perhaps, that those who went to her home were brought back up again. The shining light within expels life from the deep to become new life. See now, the ultimate tragedy of Boulder would perhaps never have been written were it not by Loki's hand. So, it is here that we reach the end of our catalogue today, a fitting conclusion. For if Odin is a god of wisdom who brings cosmos from chaos, then Loki is a god of cunning who seeks to plunge cosmos back into chaos through instinct in the guise of entertainment. Mindless egotism. Our Nordic brothers would tell us that Loki, while counted among the Aesir, is no Alsa. He is Jotun kin, and he acts in accordance to the unknowable tenets of his race. Loki displays intelligence and wit, but he appears to lack any compass of a morale beyond his own wants, not needs. Even more, he lives for the pleasure of the moment, often countermanding his very own needs. This, more than anything, is what pits him against the gods, lawlessness, selfishness. Loki has no hierarchy, respects no authority, hails nothing sacred. This is the downfall of the Etin kin, passionate undoing, enveloped by the consequences of their actions. More, Loki was a father to monsters, as Odin was father to gods. Copulating with the giantess Angarboda, whose name means yielder of sorrow, Loki got three of his brood, Hela, the goddess of death, afflicted by cruel leprosy and rendered grim. She, Odin, threw to Helheim, after her name to rule the dreary dead. Fenrir, the wolf, who swallowed the sword tear's hand. This wolf was bound, as Loki would be bound, trapped until the end of days. And finally, the Midgard serpent, Jormungand, whose only redemption was that Odin tied the serpent's fangs to his tail and compelled him to hold the inner parts of the world together, fastening land and sea beneath the memory of the sky. These were not the only monsters that Loki got. He took upon himself the form of a foal one fine day and tricked a giant's horse into sexual relations. From this, the otherworldly steed Sleipnir came. Now, how did Loki come to stand amongst the Aesir, an enemy in the heartland of the gods? Loki, through some unknown past sentimentality, was made a blood brother to Odin. Odin gave his word that at whatever table he was sat upon, Loki, too, would find welcome. In the beginning, his mischief was innocuous enough. But as it goes with Untermensch, there came a craving for more. More mischief, more leeway, more freedom from consequences. Boundaries were tested. Always the gods forced Loki to rectify his sins, but never would Loki learn, always plotting the next trick. He arranged the deft of Eden's apples. He sheared Sif's hair. He once tried to sell indignant Freya to the giants in exchange for a wall to protect Asgard from the Etten race. On and on it went. Loki sealed the fate of Atta's ransom and incurred the wrath of Andvari and his cursed horde, which in German song and legend begat the Gotardamarung. He could have stopped there and adopted the way of the Aesir, but the myth is clear and the meaning is clearer. There are some strangers who can never become kin, some tribes who can never learn. Filled with spite, incapable of empathy, Loki saw the love of Frigga for her son and arranged for Balder to die. We shall tell the tale in time. Even this, murder most foul, the bright gods might have in time forgiven had Loki paid Wehrgild, but instead he paid fleeting.
insulting the gods in the hour of grief. His fate was sealed. Thor chased him from Aegir's hall on that day. In the end, Odin devised a finnig punishment. The entrails of Narvi, Loki's son, were pulled writhing and girt in blushing blood and sweet steam from his belly until there was nothing between his ribs. The gut was wound into a gruesome cord, and with that Loki was bound to a great stone in a cave where no kiss of the sun should ever shine. Here now, the cruel but in this moment beautiful goddess of vengeance, Skadi, hung a serpent from the roof, hissing, spitting sumptuous justice down. And Loki, Loki was compelled to look with his eyes and see the venom drip, burning his retina until his eyes flaked and peeled. The transformation was complete. The god of mischief had become the devil in his hell, splendidly struggling, screaming and howling, not in repentance, but in self-pity. In this, the hermaphroditic god of lies gave birth to yet another monster, earthquakes, his final gift before the end. And that for now is the end of our time together. We have discussed the Nordic gods, I hope. I hope that you have found some inspiration in my words tonight and that as they sink in, you shall begin to look at the culture of our ancestors in a different way and perhaps, and I hope, to see the ancestral culture as something to bring forward into our present and give to the future so that it shall cease to be an ancestral cult and shall be a cult of progeny something to give our time's body shape and meaning. So Godspeed, listener, and I shall see you again, or rather I shall hear you again, by the next time.